to the end of the service for that. Uh, but it is great to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. So if you guys want to turn there. Luke writes this, beginning in verse 19. Now, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Jesus that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and you teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you and we do recognize that you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and that you will reign forever. That a coming day is coming when you will, your son Jesus will return and he will set up and he will establish a kingdom that will last for all of eternity. We look toward a day in which the new heavens and new earth will exist and you will reign supreme on the earth for all of eternity over all nations. And Father, as we wait on that day, and as we even this morning open up and begin to look at the topic of politics, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom to know how to engage and to navigate in that arena. Father, you are our chief of chief. You are our king of kings. You are the master of the Lord of hosts of the armies of heaven. And Father, I pray this morning that as we live in subjection to you, that you'd allow us to know how to live in the midst of the political arena that you've put us within. Allow us to represent you well. Allow us to know how to navigate with wisdom in that arena. Lord, may my words be yours, and may you use this time to accomplish whatever it is that you see fit in our lives. Lord, we thank you for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I'll tell you guys, I ran across a story this week of a high school teacher who is suspended for improper discipline of a child in their class, all right? Uh, never do I laugh at improper discipline of a child, but this one actually kind of caught my attention, all right? Because they had, this professor had a student in their high school class who was listening to music incessantly, and not just listening to music, but actually singing along with the music in class, which of course posed a problem, right? And so the teacher patiently and kindly and graciously began to consistently ask for the student to cease and desist from listening and even singing along, but the student continued to blow off the professor. And at some point, as the professor was maybe being humiliated by the other classmates there, at some point, the professor in the class absolutely lost it, snapped, and went crazy, all right? At some point, at that moment, the professor grabbed uh, the drawer open, grabbed some tape, and proceeded to tape the students' hands together, all right? Proceeded to tape over the mouth of the students so that they could not operate the iPad nor sing out loud, all right? And if that wasn't enough, something snapped even further and they thought it would be a great idea to take the student's book bag and to tape it on a pole that was in the class outside of the reach of the student. Now I was thinking, again, not to condone such a professor's actions, but I would have absolutely loved to have been there, right? (laughs) How awesome would that have been to watch, right? Which is probably why students probably caught that whole scene on their phones, put it on Facebook, it went social media, went viral, right? Which is why the teacher probably was brought in and suspended, all right? Obviously, no way to condone that kind of situation, but I was thinking how amazing would that be, right? And my favorite part of the whole story isn't just the hands and the mouth being taped, all right? But in many ways, it's the book bag being taped on a pole, right? As if the taping of the hands and the mouth wasn't enough to help the lesson sink in and humiliate the student. But what was the point of taping the book bag on a pole, right? The professor just loses it. And I was thinking this morning, even as we look at the topic of politics, there's really great similarity between the classroom and a government, right? There's someone who is in ruling authority, right? In this case, you and I have had professors and teachers, some of which resemble Stalin or Hitler, right? 
Some of which resemble a nice, gracious, and presidential-like teacher, right? Who rules in wisdom and rules in justice. There's also abiding citizens within not just the government, but within the classroom, right? Some of those citizens contribute nothing to the class, right? They're class clowns, right? Who are just constantly trying to upset any kind of rule and order that exists in the class. And then there are those that contribute well to the class that want to obey the rules in the class. Also, I would argue both in a classroom and even in government today that maintaining order is getting harder and harder to do, right? There's chaos in the home as the family unit breaks down, which leads to chaos in the classroom, which leads to chaos in our government, in our political system, and in our cities. Maintaining order is getting harder and harder. And lastly, I'd say there's another similarity between a classroom and a governmental system today, and that's that many of us are wondering and wrestling with where does faith fit in, not just the classroom, but where does faith even fit in politics today? This whole semester, as we've been walking through our series that we've entitled Culture Matters, we've really been wrestling with a predominant question throughout, and that's this. How does faith intersect with our world? We've looked at different arenas this uh, semester. We've looked at technology. We've looked at social justice. We've looked at Islam even last week. We've looked even uh, at the topic of technology, uh, even the arts. We've been all over the map. Next week, we'll look at the topic of sexuality. The week after, we'll look at the topic of homosexuality. So as if government wasn't controversial and challenging enough, we're going to hit sexuality in the coming weeks, all right? So you don't want to miss it. But this morning, we're going to look at the topic of politics and really wrestle with this question. How does our faith intersect with politics? My question is even more problematic and challenging when you think of the fact that our political system is one that espouses as dogma the separation of church and state, right? So how does faith intersect in a political system that separates church from state? Does faith intersect at all with politics? If so, why and how? Or does faith not intersect at all with politics? That's where we're going to kind of go this morning. That's where I want to jump in. And I think Luke chapter 20 is a perfect passage because really almost an identical question gets posed to Jesus. And what's fascinating is seeing Jesus' response to that as they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ultimately, how does my faith and my allegiance to Jesus Christ fit with a faith and allegiance to a nation that I'm a part of? How do I submit and honor the Lord himself? And how do I submit and honor ruling authorities that are political over me in this land? It's a really challenging, really controversial topic that really uh, men and women are wrestling with on controversial issues left and right today and the big dominant issues that are being discussed. What I want to do this morning is try to give you guys some tracks to run on, some boundaries, so to speak, that help you navigate between knowing what's heretical and what's wise, what's uniquely Christian and what is kind of just capitulating to the times that we're a part of. That's where I want to go this morning. But for us to get there, really, we're going to have to wade through some, some stuff, all right? Uh, what I love about this passage in Luke chapter 20 is that Jesus himself is going to have to wade through some crazy stuff before he even gets to their presenting question, the question that we're going to try to answer this morning. Because I think for Jesus, he's going to hit with a ton of different stuff that really was true going on in the political scene of Jesus' time and goes on in every political scene that we know. I'd argue to you guys that really the first step as we look at this topic of politics is that you and I need patience, all right? We need patience. Before we can really wrestle with the heart of what politics is, the heart of the purposes for our participation in politics, we can't even get there until we first establish the need for some poise and some patience. 
I'd submit to you guys that I think politics and entering the political scene is much like entering into an airport, all right? There's a lot of frustrations and there's a lot of similarities, all right? You can expect that your privacy is null and void. You go to the airport, you can expect to be scanned and patted down in ways that would lead most people to be arrested, right? Uh, Your privacy is gone, right? Uh, Same thing even with NSA and all the news headlines that have been going on. Really, the question of privacy is a dominant one in our political system today. Are you experiencing any privacy whatsoever? Not just privacy, but I can guarantee you as you step in the political arena or you even step into an airport situation, you will be lied to, right? In an airport situation, uh, a plane being on time or your reservation being confirmed really means nothing, right? (laughs) All it means is you might want to get to the airport before the other people that the airplane sold out to and oversold your flight to beats you to it and you lose your seat, right? In an airport, you can expect to be lied to. In politics, the same is true, right? It's difficult to even know what to believe. It's difficult to even know because people are constantly spinning and posturing in ways that it's really difficult to get to the bottom of the issue at times. It's not just that, but I'd argue to you guys as well that you and your stuff in an airport will be treated with a kind of gentleness and care that an angry gorilla can only do, right? Uh, same thing in politics. Expect to be pushed around. Expect to not always get uh, the truth or the matter presented to you clearly and objectively, but also imagine that your rights are sometimes going to be pushed and taken away. That in airport and in politics, frustrations reign supreme, which is why for so many of us, we don't even enter into the discussion or care about it because we get so frustrated so fast. And for us to really begin to get a sense of how we're called to wisely and winsomely walk and navigate in this arena, you and I first need patience. Jesus is going to face the same kind of stuff that you and I deal with all the time. I want you guys to notice the three things that he deals with. First, he's going to deal with power grabs. Notice verse 19. Luke tells us that the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him. They physically, literally tried to grab him. All right, But why? Why did they go after him? Text tells us that, uh, that they feared the people for they understood that Jesus had spoken a parable against them. The passage right before is a parable that Jesus gives to the nation of Israel that is directly targeted against and hostile to their religious leaders. In that day and time, in terms of the political arena, as in Jesus' time, you had Rome who was ruling over the nation of Israel, and you had religious Jewish leaders who also had an element of power. So in terms of the power plays and the power seen in the nation of Israel at the time, first century Jerusalem, you had Rome, and you had religious Jewish Pharisees and leaders, all right? Jesus emerges into the scene as now a third power player, so to speak, and the religious leaders feel threatened by him, not just because he's speaking against them, but because he's getting a following as well. The people are beginning to assemble and follow and follow behind him, and his popularity is rising to the point that it's beginning to rub up against and threaten the religious leaders, and so they're scared. So they begin to plot and they begin to power grab against him. It's fascinating that in politics, you see this all the time. It's not necessarily just literal, but it's also verbal sometimes. Somewhere along the way, I picked up the phrase that if you want to be the tallest tree in the forest, you can do one of two things. You can grow or you can cut every tree down, right? And in politics, it seems that the typical tendency seems to be to cut every tree down. I want to give you guys a sense of what some politicians will say of one another, because this has been happening for years, all right? In 1800, John Adams is running against Thomas Jefferson in a presidential campaign, and here's how they speak of one another. I love this, all right? Here's what uh, John Adams says of Thomas Jefferson. He describes Thomas Jefferson as a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw, sired by a Virginia mulatto father. (laughs) You think it's not personal, right? 
He gets racial. He gets to the mom and dad. He goes right at him, all right? And if you think that's harsh, notice what Thomas Jefferson says about John Adams, and this is my favorite, all right? Uh, He describes John Adams as a hideous, hermaphroditical character. Probably the last time you'll hear that word in church, right? Welcome to Grace of Bible. All right. Which has neither the force or firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and the sensibility of a woman. Whoa, right? John Adams, according to Thomas Jefferson, doesn't qualify as a man, and he doesn't qualify as a woman. He's just kind of stuck between genders, all right? You think it's not personal. You think it's not ugly, all right? Since 1800, even in first century Jerusalem, people are mudslinging. It's been happening for a long time, which is why a lot of us just wring our hands, get frustrated, and want to walk away and not deal with it, right? But when you have insecure leaders who are vying for the approval of man, you see some crazy stuff. It's not just Thomas Jefferson. It's not just John Adams. It happens all the time. And when you don't have actual power grabs happening, you have posturing happening all the time, right? If people aren't directly attacking one another, then you have people posturing for the approval of man all the time. Politicians are masters at marketing. They're masters at marketing. Uh, a few years ago, my wife was a drug rep, and one of the, my favorite times in her job was around Halloween because drug reps, as they would go into doctor's offices to advocate for a drug that they were selling and pushing, my wife pushed drugs and I pushed the gospel. It was a fun time in our lives, all right? Just kidding, right? Uh, but uh, awesome opportunity for her to step into that career and represent Jesus in a serious note, all right? But she would also, uh, she would tell stories of that time because I love hearing uh, what drug reps would do, all right? There was a drug rep who one time at Halloween dressed up as her competitor drug company's chief drug, all right? But it had an awful side effect. It had a side effect known as diarrhea, all right? So here's what this drug rep did. She dressed up as the competitor's drug, all right, with a chain and a toilet in tow to highlight for the patients and for the doctors that if you prescribe the competitor's drug, this is what's going to happen to your clients, all right? They're going to be tied and chained to a toilet, all right? See, drug reps are not the only ones that are good at marketing. Politicians are even better, right? Politicians know how to take an issue, even a loss politically, package it, spin it, and posture it in such a way that they look like they're smelling like roses, right? Politicians are amazing marketers. They're amazing at posturing. This is exactly what happens in Jesus' day. Notice verse 20. So they watched him, the religious leaders of the day. They watched him. They're learners of their society, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, all right? <laughs> They're just posturing. They're just looking and playing a certain role. And notice verse 21. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and that you teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Do the religious leaders of the day actually believe that at all? No, right? This is flattery, right? They're buttering Jesus up because ultimately what they're going to want to do is not just posture. They want to set him up for plot and employ so they can catch him, all right? Politicians are wonderful at power grabbing, at posturing, but even at plots and ploys. And notice verse 20 again. So they watched him and they sent spies pretending to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. In the political scene at the day, you had Roman rule, you had Jewish leaders, religious leaders who had incredible sense of political power in their day. And then Jesus is rising on the scene and he's being pitted against these two authorities. And what the religious leaders of the day want to do is they want to pin Jesus against them and against the Romans in such a way that they can threaten him and take him down so that they are not threatened any longer. I'm going to kind of turn the corner a little bit later this morning and talk about politics as it's meant to be and as it's good, right? But for many of us, as we enter the political scene, so many of us sometimes just don't worry about it at all because we're just so frustrated by it. We see this kind of stuff all the time, right? See it in our day. We see governmental shutdowns. We wonder... Who are they 
leading for? Who are they representing, right? We see them not being able to agree with one another. We see power grabs. We see posturing. We see actual shutdowns. We wonder what is going on in Washington. Some of you guys love listening to the radio. You love listening to TV shows. Certain people that you love listening to that dive into the topic of politics. And the reality is for many of us, some of us have checked out entirely from this whole topic. Some of us are just fed up and frustrated with it, having no idea how to navigate it. And so what I want to do for us this morning as we begin to jump into is I want you guys to see that Jesus was experiencing the same kind of stuff that frustrates us, right? And yet the difference for Jesus is I'm going to argue to you guys that he had a political poise and patience that we often lack. They're going to present to Jesus a question in verse 22 and they say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're wanting to threaten and catch Jesus in a trap. I'm going to show you guys Jesus' answer a little bit later, but what I want you guys to see before we look at his answers, I want you guys to see what he does in verse 23. But he detected their trickery and he said, Jesus doesn't react. Jesus doesn't get into polarizing extremes. In fact, what we're going to see him do with his answer is he's going to lay out two extremes and then he's going to navigate right in the middle of those extremes, right? But I think Jesus' response here is so unique from what we often do, right? Either some of us get so frustrated that we just check out entirely from the topic of politics. Or some of us get so frustrated that we move to one extreme and become yet another polarizing figure and voice in this whole political discussion. Jesus understands what's going on. He doesn't react to it. He doesn't get frustrated. He demonstrates a poise and a perceptivity. He can see what's going on and is going to move to the heart of the issue. For you and I, I want to highlight for you guys really what are the the ultimate purposes of our participation in politics But before you and I can get there, we've got to have some poise and some patience. And how does that look? What are some practical ways that we can demonstrate that kind of poise and patience? Let me give you guys a few ideas. First is that you guys need to stop listening to those that espouse fear and hate. (laughs) I don't care whether you listen to Fox News or CNN. I don't care who you love to listen to on the radio or whatever talking head that you love to tune into. The political industry, in terms of mass media, lives on extremism and polarizing kind of uh, sensationalness, all right? Extremism sells. Uh, Stirring up fear and hate is the kind of thing that that arena is built around and is popularizing, all right? And so for so many of us, that's why we get so frustrated, because it stirs in us frustration with whatever, whatever political party that you align with. This sees the other party as miles and miles away from one another, all right? And so one of the things I want to challenge you guys to as we begin to step into this arena is that if we're going to be able to demonstrate poise and patience, we've got to stop listening to certain voices. (laughs) There are certain voices, there are certain outlets that are intended to stir fear and hate in us. And we've got to begin to cut that out of our diet. That may not be the, the best voice and the best guide for us as we enter into the process and enter into the discussion. Second of all, I'd say to you guys, you might want to reevaluate some of your Facebook activity. Some of us love to engage on Facebook and on social media with a lot of political commentary. And my question for you guys is, in the midst of that, how beneficial is that to anyone? Does anyone change their political persuasion, their political paradigms because of social media? No. If anything, it just helps polarize and put people into different camps and get people more and more frustrated. And I begin to wonder if our presence on social media, even as Christians, begins to really obscure the very reality and the truth and the beauty of the gospel. As we enter into this discussion, as we enter into this arena, as we espouse views, as we hold and advocate positions or ideas, for many of us, my fear is that we begin to obscure the love and the grace of the gospel of God. 
and what he's done for us by the way that we enter into these discussions. And if that's the case, then we've got to really, really begin to reevaluate how we're handling social media, how we're handling some of that discussion. Lastly, I'd say for us that for us to have poise and patience, I think one of the telltale signs of poise and patience is a willingness and a tendency to pray. When you and I are frustrated and when we're overwhelmed, the first thing that often jumps or drops off of our spiritual lives is prayer, right? When you're overwhelmed with test week, sometimes you may open the word, but you may not really even be in prayer, right? And I'd say in the political arena, when we're frustrated, when we are just up to our neck and absolute uh, irritability with this, the last thing that we have a tendency to do is pray. And yet Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that I urge that entreaties and prayers be made on behalf of all men for all kings and all who are in authority. But this is the mark of the church as we enter into this arena. Incredible poise and patience and a willingness and a tendency to pray. I want to ask you guys, when was the last time that you prayed for the president? When was the last time you paid for Congress? When was the last time you entered into prayer even during that shutdown period? Or did you just rant and get frustrated? See, I think for many of us, especially for the church, we've got to begin to learn to rethink the way that we engage in this issue and we've got to start in a whole new place. I think we've got to start with some patience and some poise to not react and get caught into the extremes. Otherwise, we can't really engage with the kind of prayer that we're called to do. I don't care whether you agree with a party that's in control of one house or what, or in, in, terms, of the, in terms of the office of the presidency or not. No matter your political party, party and your preferences, you and I are called as believers to interact and step into the civic arena and pray for our leaders, whether we agree with them or not. And that as we do that, I can guarantee you, we begin to then engage very differently with opponents and with people of different persuasions and different views. And all of a sudden, we begin to emulate a kind of grace and a love, even in differences of opinions, all right? Jesus is going to show an incredible patience and poise. And I think what Jesus is going to do for us is begin to lay out some tracks for us as we can begin to get, get a sense of how to actually recover some of the original purposes of our participation, all right? This whole section on participation really gets led off with a question, all right? A question that I tried to lead off even this morning, all right? How does our faith intersect with politics? I think Jesus gets asked it this way, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ultimately, this question really is difficult for Jesus. Ultimately, what the religious leaders want to do is they want to catch Jesus so that he either upsets one group of people or another. There are two different answers you could have had to this question if you're Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a yes, no question, right? You can either say yes and you'll upset a group of people or you can say no and you can upset a group of people. But either way, either answer, the religious leaders went out, all right? And we'll try to highlight that for you guys because what's going to end up happening here as we walk through this is I want to show you guys three different approaches to politics, all right? Three different ways that we can navigate through this arena in terms of how we engage and how we participate. And I'll tell you guys that I think sometimes questions lead to great discoveries, all right? Questions are often the gateway to a great discovery. I'll tell you guys, my first year uh, dating or married with Marcy, Marcy asked me a simple question that led to a huge discovery for me. She asked me, hey, have you ever grown out your hair? All right. I had never grown out my hair. It had always been a core haircut. When I was a student here at A&M, core guys would whip out to me constantly because I had that short of hair, but I wasn't in the core. But I just said, yeah, and I just rolled with it. All right. I loved it. All right. I felt important. All right. So I just went with it. All right. Uh, but I never even knew I had curly hair until someone said to me, hey, have you ever grown out your hair? And now I have this amazing moneymaker that makes me look like Joel Osteen. It's amazing, all right? Um, so here's the deal. 
questions lead to discoveries. It led to a discovery for me about my hair and now for you as well. All right. So uh, Jesus's question, the question posed to Jesus is going to lead to a great discovery for them. All right. Uh, because they're going to, Jesus is going to highlight two possible answers, but then he's going to present a third that they didn't foresee that they didn't understand. I'm going to give you guys the two answers that they would have foreseen that are really the two dominant approaches to politics. And then I'm going to give you guys and try to explain to you Jesus's answer, which is a whole different approach to politics that I want to argue for. All right. This is a little bit of a different morning. All right. So here we go. All right. Uh, ultimately, when they ask him, hey, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? One of the answers that Jesus could have said is no. No, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. If he says that, what's the problem for Jesus? Who's upset? The Romans, right? If Jesus says in this public gathering, no, it is not lawful for you Jews to pay taxes to a Roman pagan king, then the Romans are going to come in and kill him, right? Which ends up happening anyways, right? But when the religious leaders are doing that, they're trying to pit him in a corner so that he has to answer one way or the other. And if he says no, then the Romans are upset and he's in trouble. But if he says no, what's the rationale behind someone possibly saying, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, right? I'm going to try to give you guys uh, three different views uh, in uh, some kind of ways I'm going to try to organize this for you, right? If Jesus says no, it's because he's putting forward an approach to politics that says that the church and state, so to speak, are two entities with no distinction that compete with one another, all right? That in this idea that no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, what Jesus is saying is this, that the church and state... All right. There's no distinction with one another. In fact, there's no distinction in their spheres. They're in the same sphere and they compete with one another. All right. We've seen this model of politics in the past in countries before, which is why we've had some of the most horrific atrocities of religious liberty in the past when government and state come together. All right. We've seen it in different pieces of European history. All right. Uh, The Christian crusades, state and church came together for one of the worst human atrocities of the church period. All right. Uh, Nazi Germany. Church and state come together with some of the most uh, horrific herocities that we've known to human history, all right? Uh, a lot of uh, uh, states in the uh, Middle East uh, have a, a view of church and history or church and state coming together. Uh, a lot of Islamic nations have, and we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, that they look at Christian, uh, they look at America as a Christian nation because for them, their nation is a Muslim nation, all right? That in many parts of the world, the viewpoint and the approach to politics is a combination of church and state. There's no distinction between them. So much so that they compete and they vie for one another. And so as you look at much of church history, you look at different periods in time in which nations had sometimes uh, Roman popes telling nations who could be king, who could be monarch, all right? You have periods in church history where those are some of the worst periods of religious liberty and religious oppression. They're not good moments, right? And we see it over and over again, all right? When there's no distinction in church and state, then compete with one another. If Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, what he's doing is he's putting, uh, in a sense, church authority over Roman authority and saying that church authority should compete and should rule over Roman authority, so don't pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus is not going to say that, though, all right? The other option, if you want to push these things into extremes, is that Jesus could have said, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Why? If he says it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, who's upset? The Jews, right? Jews are paying exorbitant taxes to the Romans at the time who are ruling over them as pagans. The Jews who uh, are now really liking and becoming popular to Jesus now, uh, if he says it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then Jesus, politically speaking, is backed into a corner. The people are upset with him that back away from Jesus. And now, guess what? The religious leaders of the day are back in charge, right? They're trying to paint Jesus into a corner, right? 
But if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, one of the rationales, one of the political approaches is to see church and state as something that are fully distinct from one another, that are in which faith is irrelevant to the state. So the first viewpoint sees church and state enmeshed with one another and competing for power. And a second political approach to another extreme, they see church and state completely separate from one another. And church or faith is absolutely irrelevant to state. All right. Ultimately, you can be a Christian, but as you step into the political arena, you should be an atheist is the idea. That when you step into the voting booth or a president steps into the Oval Office, he should check his faith in at the door because faith is irrelevant to politics. They are fully distinct from one another in separate spheres, and faith is irrelevant to the sphere of politics, all right? This idea really actually got pushed and became incredibly popular uh, due to John F. Kennedy, all right? I'm going to give you guys a quote from Kennedy. Kennedy, in 1960, was running uh, as the Democratic Party's candidate for president, all right? He was going to be and running to be the first Catholic president of the United States ever. But in a nation that was primarily Protestant at the time, his Catholic faith was a problem, all right? And so as his party was trying to get him elect for president, they were trying to posture in such a way that it would help assure the fears of the Protestants, all right? And so here is what Kennedy says. Notice the political theory working in terms of the relationship of church and state and the place of faith in terms of politics. Notice what Kennedy says, because Kennedy's going to be the first guy to say this and going to really begin to push this viewpoint forward. Notice what he says. In a campaign speech, he says, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I'm the Democratic Party's candidate for president who happens also to be Catholic. My Catholic faith is coincidental. It's happen chance to who I am. All right. He goes on further and he says, I do not speak for my church on public matters and the church does not speak for me. Whatever issue may come before me as president on birth control, divorce, censorship, gambling, or any other subject. And then today we could add abortion, uh, human rights, sanctity of life, uh, the role in the place of marriage, right? Kennedy says, I will make my decision without regard to outside religious pressures or dictates. Kennedy, speaking to a nation that was primarily Protestant at the time, says, don't worry. If I were to step into the Oval Office, I will take my Catholic faith and I will hang it on the door before I go in. And when I step into the Oval Office, I'm no longer Catholic. That was the argument. Do you think that assured Protestants or do you think that made them more worried? Made them more worried, right? It was a horrific political misstep on his part toward, toward a Protestant nation. They were more worried about an atheist president than they were about a Catholic president, right? But it popularized an approach that is now the normal approach today, which said, hey, when you enter the political arena, check your faith in at the door. Faith has no relevance. It has no voice. It has no authority in the realm of politics. This is the dominant approach. This is the dominant viewpoint today. Kennedy espoused it ideally in 1960, and it's caught steam today. Postmodernism has helped immensely uh, move uh, and create separations of knowledge and faith, right? And especially in the realm of politics, we see this hugely. I'll give you guys another quote in terms of how faith is seen in the realm of politics. Uh, I read a book this week uh, by a guy named Francis Beckwith. Awesome book. If you guys have more questions on this whole arena, I'll give, you guys it to, give it to you guys as a reference. But he says this, speaking of our day in terms of this second approach that sees faith and church as fully distinct in which faith is absolutely irrelevant to the state. All right. He says this, because many do not consider beliefs informed by theology as belonging to a knowledge tradition. They feel justified in dismissing theologically informed policy proposals as de facto inferior to so-called secular ones that are answering the same questions that the faith ones are trying to answer. What he's saying is that in today, in our time, 
what ends up happening is that if you enter the political arena with a faith-based proposal, a faith-based theological understanding of something, it's immediately discounted. This is by and large the sense and the environment that you and I are living in today that says, hey, check your faith in at the door when you step in the voting booth. Faith-based arguments are not valid. They're not seen as consequential or significant in this day and time. All right. Jesus is going to articulate and I think navigate between these two extremes with a whole different approach. A whole different approach. Uh, I want you guys to notice verse 22 again. Notice the question that's posed to him. He says, is it lawful? Or they say to him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He's going to give an answer that I think is a completely different approach between these two extremes. All right. Notice his answer in verse 24. He says, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 25, then he says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's Jesus doing? Why does he answer this way? Is he just trying to play it safe? Is he not wanting to say what they should do or not? I think he provides an answer this directly to their question, but it's an answer they didn't imagine being possible. I think Jesus' answer is an understanding of church and state or faith and state in this way. That there is some distinction between the faith, faith and the state, faith and politics, but they are complementary to one another. They shouldn't be enmeshed and wedded together, all right? But they are also not completely distinct from one another. In fact, they, are, they do have some distinction in their realms and their spheres of authority, but even in those distinctions, they are complementary to one another and not competing with one another. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, speaking of tax, all right? And render to God the things that are God's. Here's my question for you guys as we think through this more practically. What are the things that are God's? What are the things that should have been Caesar's, all right? I want you guys to keep your finger here in Luke 20, and I want you guys to flip over to Romans chapter 13, because here's what I want to do for you guys. I want to show you guys, ultimately, what are the things of the state, and then what are the things of God, all right? Romans chapter 13 is a wonderful passage. Paul, speaking to the Christian church, will try to help give them an understanding of how they're to navigate in the political arena. I think what you're going to see is that he's going to highlight for, the, for you and I is that there are things of the state that the state is called to, commissioned, and divinely ordained to do by God. And they're not at all that different from what God is called to do and what God does and what he's called the church to do, all right? Notice Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. God has ordained government, all right? Uh, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. What an amazing statement about the state of politics and the state of the government. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have opposed, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers, political rulers, are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For political rulers are servants of God. Fascinating statement about the state, right? Devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom it is tax. Or tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Keep in mind, Paul was in the day of Nero's rule, which, which was some of the most 
awful, most persecuting, most severe and harsh for the, for the first century church at the time. And yet, notice his viewpoint on the identity and the role of government. So what are the things of Caesar's? I'm going to give you guys a quick list from Romans 13. The, what are the things of the state? What are the things of Caesar? One, to rule with authority. Two, promote righteousness. Three, punish evil wickedness. Four, collect taxes. Five, we'll find from other passages, protect the poor and the oppressed. This is what the church, or this is what the government is called to do. Commissioned by God as servants of God. All right? But distinct from the church. But here's my question. Aren't these also the things of God? Isn't this also what God does? Isn't this very similar to also to what the church has been called to do? I think it is, right? So what's Jesus saying to the nation of Israel in the midst of their question? Again, I think what he's saying is, is that, uh, again, the idea being that church and state are distinct entities and institutions, but their purposes are complementary to one another. Complementary to one another. So you do not check your faith in at the door as you enter in. Your faith is a part of your process and participation in it. In fact, uh, Aristotle himself coined a phrase that statecraft is soul craft. I love that phrase. That the role of government is also the role sometimes of shaping the soul. That those do have, uh, in a sense, some overlap. In fact, Beckwith, speaking of and uh, referring to Aristotle's phrase on this, would say this. This is what Aristotle meant. That by this, that the state or government, by its policies, procedures, and actions, places moral ideas in the social and legal fabric of a political regime. And that these ideas serve to shape the quality of its citizens' character. Government deals with morality and they deal with our character. It's fascinating. Fascinating statement, all right? Uh, So let me give you guys, in a sense, some implications of this, all right? Implications. Where do we go from here? One, I think the idea of church and state separation has gotten too wide, all right? In fact, church and state separation, that whole phrase really wasn't coined and popularized until the mid to late 19th century, all right? So even what the framers of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, understood by some of this terminology has gotten very vague, all right? It has been an evolving thing. In fact, even the uh, First Amendment of the Bill of Rights says this, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But how do you define religion? How do you define an establishment of religion? How do you define the free exercise of that religion? Because there are times that government has said to certain religions, your uh, exercise of your religion harms the common good. So polygamy for Mormons, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. There are times that the state has intervened and said, that's not for the common good of our society. So this whole even discussion really is a difficult one. It's not simplistic at all. All right. Second thing I want to highlight for you guys in the midst of this difficulty is that the idea of a national conscience or morality are very important. Conscience, conviction, morality are not outside the scope of government. Government is determining, promoting, and punishing for right and wrong. Government is in the issue of morality. It is. The discussion of our character, the discussion of our conscience, what we think to be right and wrong, is very much in the obligation, the sphere of the church, and in government, all right? Uh, there is distinction between those spheres, but there is complementary overlap in what they do, which is why to remove God from the scene and from the discussion of politics is catastrophic. Um, to remove God from the scene is catastrophic. Beckwith says this, that the liberties which we cherish, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that according to the Constitution, Declaration of Independence are God-given, that they depend on a natural moral law best explained by the existence of God. So here's my question for you guys in terms of our nation. How does a government that's promoting right and wrong do it without God? 
How do you have an understanding of right and wrong or morality without a God in the picture? And let me phrase it this way too. If the rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are God-given, then what happens to those rights and their basis if God is removed from the equation? It's a slippery ground. It's a very troubling spot, right? When you begin to remove God from the scene of politics, you are in a catastrophic place. It's not a good spot. God is not to be removed from the scene of politics. Faith is not to be checked in the door. That's not how you and I operate and how we engage. And so let me give you guys, as we wrap up, let me give you guys a few really practical ideas and applications, all right? First, be informed and vote, right? It is your obligation. It is your duty as a citizen of the nation, also as a Christian under God, if you know Jesus Christ, to be informed about the issues, to be informed about your faith, And what do the scriptures say about right and wrong? But also, what is the political system that you're a part of? Be informed. Be in the know. Don't bury your head in the sand because you're frustrated. That's not what you've been called to do. That's not an option for you. Whether their frustration and engage and get informed and participate with your vote and your voice. All right. And as you vote and as you have a voice on the issue, let me give you guys another idea. Begin to learn to argue and communicate based on the common good. All right. I do think faith has a place in politics that when you and I lead with and argue for because the Bible says, that's not how you and I can start a discussion in the political arena. The political arena is built on an understanding of what leads to the common good. And I would argue that the scriptures and their sense of right and wrong are all about the common good. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. (laughs) That an obedient lifestyle leads to a fruitful, blessed lifestyle that is long, right? That faithfulness, obedience leads to blessing. Not necessarily in that if you obey, you're blessed like in the Old Testament, but in general, there are principles still exist, which is why Proverbs is wisdom literature, that obedience does bring blessing. That what God has revealed in the scriptures in terms of right and wrong is for the common good of this nation and any nation, which is why you and I have to begin to learn how to argue for certain ideas, not just because the Bible says, because then the conversation's over, right? As we enter into a wider discussion, but we have to begin to argue for uh, how, how does an issue relate to the common good? whether that's the issue of sanctity of life, whether that's the issue of marriage or whatever. How does our viewpoint, how does our approach lead to the common good, all right? Thirdly, uh, let me argue and encourage some of you guys that may be wired and may be loving this, that maybe your role, it may be something God has called you to, maybe something God has wired you for, to have a role and to enter into, maybe even vocationally into politics, all right? Some of the things we started out with this morning, talking about politicians and the ways that politics work are frustrating, right? But it is possible for a believer to enter into those arenas and walk it out differently. And in that difference, represent Christ in a way that is truly unique. And if God is being removed from the equation, then we as believers can step back into that political arena and represent God and bring God back into it. Representing God doesn't mean that you have to belong to a certain political party, right? Not at all. But it means that as you know Jesus Christ, as you step into that arena, you can represent and you can push for the things of God. You can see righteousness reestablished. You can see wickedness punished. You can see men and women represent and love people well, right? And you see the common good of a community and a society. I'd argue for some of you guys that may begin here and here at AM as you look at and as you step into student government. That may be a place that your faith is able to live out. That may be a place that God calls you to, and that is wonderful, all right? That is strategic. Uh, We'll talk in a couple weeks about employment and work, and I'll argue to you guys that a job, nine to five, engineering, medicine, whatever, I'll argue that work is worship, all right? I'll argue to you guys in terms of politics, again, as Aristotle put it, statecraft is soulcraft. 
that as you represent and as you step into government, you are representing and serving in a role commissioned, divinely ordained by God. And so you are not selling out if you want to enter into that arena and represent and serve a campus, serve a community, serve a city, or serve a nation. What a wonderful place to serve God. What a wonderful place to represent him and to serve a nation, to serve a city, to serve a community, or even a campus. If that's something that excites you, if this sermon this morning, you're going, hey, I'm all about this. I'm dialed in, right? If that's you, man, I'd say, hey, maybe God is sparking something in you for student government. It might be a great place for you to serve. Fourthly and lastly, let me argue and let me say this, that in the midst of, I argue that all that government can do, all of the impact it can make, all of the change that it can influence, it's never going to be perfect, right? Government of any kind, of any variety, is led by broken men in a broken world. And so we are all waiting for a day to come when a king will return with a perfect kingdom and a perfect government. And so in the midst of however much we engage in this political arena, as we are called to do, let us engage it with a managed expectation, realizing that as much as we may see, as much as we may work for, it's never going to be perfect until Jesus Christ himself returns. I'll tell you guys, especially Bible churches, sometimes we are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? Sometimes it is our bent, it is our makeup to see government and politics in the city as a Titanic that's going down until Jesus returns. And so many will argue why polish the door handles, right? It's going down. And yet I think that's, a, that's an, uh, an ignorance and a step away from what God has called us to be as believers in the civic arena. Whether it's going down or not, when Christ returns, so be it. But we're called to influence it. We're called to bring pockets of change, pockets of a highlight of what's coming in the future because a day is coming in the future when Jesus Christ will return. So even as you engage, engage with a managed expectation, realizing that something better is coming, something way better. And as we think back toward, as we wait for a king who is returning, who will set up a kingdom that will last, that will be reigning over all nations in which justice and righteousness will be demonstrated, displayed perfectly. Ultimately, government is not the solution that fixes every need, right? Some people run to government as the end-all solution, and it is a broken vessel that can do much good, but it ultimately doesn't fix the heart of man and the depravity of man. Only the gospel can. Which is why, even as we walk through this missions week, which is why we're talking a lot about missions, which is why we'll have a pizza lunch this afternoon, or right after the service, to help you guys get a sense of how the gospel can go to the nations. As we talk about politics, it's not government or gospel. It's not either or, it's both and. That we can step into the civic arena and influence for the glory of God, and we can step in and share the gospel as well for the glory of God. It's not an either or. And so what I want us to do is we kind of close in some worship. I want you guys to have an opportunity to just come before the Lord. I want you guys to have an opportunity realizing in the midst of what we've been called to in our civic arena, there's still a king who is coming who will reign supreme, who will reign in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And that although the governing authorities of our day are not perfect, they are nothing like some of the governing authorities we've seen through human history, though. Uh, as much as we get frustrated, these are men that look nothing like the atrocities that have come before, right? They're men who genuinely want what's good for a nation. They're trying their best, an incredibly difficult job. And so my heartbeat for you guys is that we would engage in poise and prayer and that we would ultimately, even as we engage, though, rest back and rely back on a king who is coming, who is our ultimate hope who we love and who can represent wherever we step. Mm-hmm.